You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. And your calls are welcome at 424-BOB-SHOW. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. The Bob Zadek Show, the only live libertarian talk radio show on the Arrow Weekend. The show always of ideas, never of attitude. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation this morning with Anthony Fisher. Anthony has written a compelling piece in the Daily Beast uh, recently, Why Antifa Nazi Punching is Just a Gift to the Right. In other words, Anthony's thesis, and of course he is correct, is that when the anti-fascist, kind of an absurd title, but the anti-fascist movement resorts to violence to suppress or oppose the alt-right, which probably has some roots in violence as well, it is just becomes violence, begets violence, begets violence, and the point of all of it is kind of lost, and there is no intellectual conversation, there is just people punching people I am an anti-fascist because I am opposed to fascism. So that's uh, that's kind of a phrase that everybody, uh, if that's the label, doesn't everybody belong to it? And what distinguishes the Antifa anti-fascist movement from those people who just plain, like you and I, are anti-fascist? Yeah, I mean, I, I would describe myself as anti-fascist. I would also describe myself as pro-life. I would also describe myself as pro-choice. You know, so these are these are terms that, uh, by definition, are something. Uh, so yeah, I, I consider myself anti-fascist, uh, and uh, the, the the part of the reason why uh, it's been frustrating debating with people who don't understand Antifa or maybe understand it all too well is that uh, a common straw man argument is Antifa is short for anti-fascist action. How could you be opposed to that? And uh, that's just an absurd straw man argument. Uh, you can be anti-fascist and still think that uh, the, the group that calls itself Antifa, uh, that their tactics are actually ultimately embolden uh, fascism and that they certainly uh, potentially... I mean, there's definitely evidence that their actions have led to crackdowns on peaceful protest, free expression, and marginalized groups that they ostensibly claim to be speaking for. So so the reason we're talking about Antifa today, merrily, is uh, two incidents. One, the day of Donald Trump's election, when um, I'll call him a neo-Nazi, he would call himself all right, Richard Spencer, was uh, giving an interview to an Australian uh, TV station in Washington, D.C., on the side of the road, and a young person, very likely a male, uh, dressed head-to-toe in black and a mask, came up and blindsided him and sucker-punched him, and, it, and the video of this sucker-punch went viral, uh, mostly to universal acclaim, because, you know, who doesn't like seeing a Nazi punched and humiliated? Uh, but I immediately kind of recoiled, and, yeah, you know, Hell with Richard Spencer, you know, I'd love to see him humiliated, but when you, you know, when, when you've resorted to violence, uh, you have, all you've done is made a martyr out of him, all you've done is give the far-right ammunition to claim that opposition to their movement is inherently violent, um, and you've now, you know, you've lowered the bar for what is acceptable violence. Um, and so immediately, 
the defend, people defending it would 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 come up with um, you know comic book covers World War II where Superman is punching a Nazi or Captain America is punching a Nazi as though Richard Spencer who uh, reappeared last night with his entire movement of 30 imbeciles in Charlottesville marching against the Tiki um, elevating Richard Spencer and his neo-Nazi movement to the German war machine of the 30s and 40s is just absurd and it's not a good faith argument um, but this is this this began the argument that continues now nine months later of the ethics of Nazi punching. So that's the first incident. The second incident, which I just alluded to, uh, came uh, primarily from uh, the protests in Berkeley that preceded uh, the, uh, the the murder of uh, an, an anti-fascist protester in Charlottesville in August. So in Berkeley, um, Antifa were shutting down, uh, were, were attempting to shut down a, a, a kind of broad movement uh, or a broad uh, protest that included some alt-right neo-Nazi types and other just kind of general Trump, pro-Trump or other right-wing types. Uh, but the, in, in, in this, you know, very, very large protest where most people were peaceful, uh, and, and when I say most people, I mean most of the uh, counter-protesters, most of the people who would either be on the anti-fascist side or the pro-left side, as it were. But there were plenty of people who uh, either identified as journalists or were mistaken for being on the Nazi side or were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the uh, people dressed in black bloc, which is, which is a tactic, not a group, that, but that's when uh, are dressed in all black to anonymize themselves from both uh, media coverage and uh, law enforcement. Uh, when you ran afoul of one of these people and they came after you, the black bloc followed and you no longer had the, you no longer could explain, you know, that you were a journalist or a bystander or that you were just a liberal who opposed violence as a matter of principle. They were coming after you. Um, and there's, this is, this is a fact. It's been, it's been documented that in the Weekly Standard, um, and there's been, you know, other instances, uh, you know, uh, I believe Taylor Lorenz is a journalist from The Hill. She was attacked by Antifa, uh, and these are, these, are, these are things that I warned about immediately, that when you're liberal, when I say liberal, I don't mean like Democrat, I mean like somebody who believes in, liber- in the principles of liberal democracy, and you kind of wink at these masked vigilantes who have self, you know, declared themselves the arbiters of violence, and that you're you're saying that these people, these these are the brave soldiers, you know, on the front lines against fascism, and you're 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 saying that it's okay that they, on the streets, in split second decisions, as a mob, decide and who is this, who is worthy of being beaten. Um, I think you've already lost the argument. I think you. To say that you're better than them, or that you believe in uh, universal principles of civil liberties, um, and so I've had these arguments, um, and I was invited on Al Jazeera after writing uh, the article that you mentioned uh, in the Daily Beast, where I was invited to debate two self-professed Antifa, one British and one Italian, and also Mark Bray, who's a Dartmouth. Uh, adjunct lecturer and the author of a recently published book called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, which is um, the 
pretty much the 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 the, the word on the Antifa movement and and its history going back more than a hundred years. And uh, again, I was I was met with bad faith arguments where. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea that even criticizing Antifa tactics as counterproductive or illiberal was in somehow equating them with Nazis, which uh, throatedly in my Daily Beast article said, no, they are not equivalent. That far-right violence is completely demonstrable. Uh, is, uh, they've, they've, they've killed more people. They've hurt more people. There have been more far-right violent incidents than far-left incidents in the United States. Uh, and that I just that I felt, I felt that this tactic was wrong, and I felt that this movement was misguided. And um, so, after this debate, I read Mark Bray's book, and then wrote a review of it in the Daily Beast. And unsurprisingly, it's not you know the, the movement doesn't just define itself as anti-fascist. They are they, they are proposing what they call a quote radical socialist revolutionary alternative. So it's it's still it's the same stuff you know we've always heard that like this time social it's a real deal. It's never. It's not going to just you know devolve into starvation or genocide or dictatorship or cult of personality. This time it'll actually be egalitarian. So it's all right. This is very intellectual in the weed stuff. Just say we've had this argument. Let's stick to hand, which is whether or not uh, violence is justifiable. What the cause? Whether or not you know you believe in. Of the principles of a, limit, a liberal democratic society, and what I found in is in this entire book, there was one paragraph, just one, that expressed any concern about the potential for backlash or the potential for violence being so fetishized within the movement that came to define the movement. One paragraph. That was it, and zero acknowledgement of anyone who was innocent or journalists being caught up in the violence. So that pretty much told me what I what I need. Was uh, you know that the, the the leading intellectual who made his point to um, research all the, all the history of Antifa, you know, fighting fascists in East London in the 30s and fighting the Franco regime in Spain, but really no self-reflection, no no you know not not even an acknowledgement that their most famous victory, which was when they which is called the Battle of Cable Street, which um, Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn just uh, commemorated um, they, a, a group of, you know, a large group of anti-fascist protesters prevented uh, a fascist movement, a politically active fascist movement, from marching in East London. And that's still being, you know, described as a great victory. But no acknowledgement of the fact that after that, this same group, the uh, British Union of Fascists, gained... Um, electoral victories in the local government, and that violence against Jews went up in that in that area. That, so, so ultimately, like they had, a, they had a victory for a day that they're still celebrating over seventy years later. But the the greater ramifications um, were were one of failure. So, so your prediction, right your pre- yeah. I'm sorry, your prediction. Or your thesis of your piece in the Daily Beast um, was that, in fact, the violence of the alleged anti-fascist action movement, the tactics they adopt, are profoundly counterproductive, and it just encouraged counterviolence uh, on the right uh, by the uh, neo-Nazis and whatever other 
groups fall within that umbrella. Now, Anthony, the, the question I would have is, of course, you don't have to think back very far to think of a time when there wasn't so much violence in the streets between the right and the left. And can you, you are a great student of social movements, uh, and you study it and you write in a very informative and accessible way about these movements. Can you, is there a starting point? Can you trace this very disturbing violence begets violence begets violence movement? Can you trace it to an event uh, or circumstances? Because it didn't used to occur all that much in America. Sure, there was some, there was occasional rioting, racially driven, uh, like uh, that in uh, in the St. Louis area, uh, and things of that nature. But nothing as political as this. Is there a starting point, um, and is there possibly an ending point for this? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, so so I mean, this this particular iteration of, of Antifa before uh, Trump was elected president was probably best known for some occasional black black violence during the Occupy movement. A little bit in New York, much more on the West Coast. Specifically, uh, Occupy Oakland uh, was kind of besieged, and I had spoken with some Occupy Oakland organizers who didn't want the uh, the black black or Antifa co-opting their cause, that they had made it a very deliberate point to be peaceful. Uh, and so when you had people coming in and torching police car windows and attacking people, that kind of threw the whole peaceful protest thing out the window. Uh, prior to that, in 1999, in Seattle, when the World Trade Organization uh, was meeting, there was a huge riot, um, and it was you know, commemorated in the film The Battle, Battle, or the Battle of Seattle. Um, so, but, but that... That didn't catch on. These were like these were both like real blips. Uh, whereas now they were like flash uh, riots. They were kind of flash yeah, riots. Yeah. So whereas now, Fox News is you know heavy breathing on a daily basis that Antifa is is about to bring about a Stalinist dictatorship, which they're not. It's absurd. It's that is that is panic. But on the on the flip side of that, you have you know more center left sites like Vox. Uh, producing videos uh, to focus on Antifa violence is to miss the point. And that's just so absurd and such a cop-out because you would absolutely focus on the violence, you know, even if it was limited or, or rare, if it was on the right or with anyone. So instead of blaming the media for covering violence, which anyone should in, in a liberal society should abhor, perhaps, you know, say, Let's not do this. Let's, let's protest vigorously. You know, if you want to protest the, the Trump administration, do it. You want to protest Nazis? Get 10,000 people together and laugh at them, point at them, you know, stop them from marching. But as soon as you start sucker-punching people, as soon as you start lighting Roman candles on public property to stop people from speaking, you have, what, what you've done is you've demonstrated a failure of thought. And this is not, you know, this is not uh, you know, a right-wing pundit talking. This is Bernie Sanders talking. You know, this is Elizabeth Warren talking. This is Noam Chomsky talking. All of them say that violence is not our game. Our game is ideas. Their game is violence. And, and the trouble, of course, with any movement, whether it's the alt-right or the alt-left, is that regretfully, I think it's fair to say, there are some members, a profound a tiny minority in society, who simply are drawn to any 
any activity where violence is kind of allowed, if not for the minute, for an hour or for a day. And they're just drawn for the violence of it, not for the ideas. So you end up building a movement that whatever political goal it has, it becomes permission to do violence and it draws the thugs of society as well so it becomes then just a gang uh and yeah, i mean i mean that probably is, is like one one of the things that i think was great and valuable work is uh investigating exposing and exposing uh nazis so they they'll you know they'll be doing they'll be trolling websites where nazis are planning on organizing and, and it should be very it should be made clear that in Charlottesville, on some of these, you know, uh, uh, message boards, the the Nazis who had been in the valley were also talking about violence. They were also talking about using cars as a means of violence, and that's what happened. So, if Antifa is had been just focusing their efforts on that, on investigating them, making sure they know where they're meeting, and then exposing them so that you know they are ostracized from society, or perhaps even get a few of these people who, like you said, are young men on the fringe who might be drawn to, like, the rebel violence and, you know, making him, you know, making, but may not be, like, so completely committed to a white ethno state that they're willing to ruin their lives over it, you know, exposing them. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Maybe they go, you know, not worth it. Not worth losing my life. Not worth being branded a Nazi for the rest of my life, losing friends and family. I'm going to bail on this thing. But as soon as you start, you know, creating, like, these, you know, lawless militias, that just go around marauding, hitting everyone, everyone that stands, whether they're fisking liberals or journalists or, you know, people of color who might be right-wing, which all of these things have happened, and they don't want to accept it. Antifa and their apologists don't want to accept that it. it's already happened. It's not a theoretical thing. Then, you, then, like you said, it's not just people on the right. It's not just the young people on the right. It's young people on the left who are drawn to this rebel action, and they use very self-aggrandizing language like, we're the brave. We're the ones brave enough to fight the Nazis. You liberals, you know, in your ivory towers with your pointy heads, talking about the First Amendment and civil liberties. Those aren't going to do you much good when you're, you know, when you're on a train to Auschwitz, which to me is not only offensive but the mark of hysteria. That's that's just not a rational argument. Um, it's insulting, and it really shows the weakness of their own argument. Anthony, there's another aspect to this which hasn't been mentioned so much in the conversation about the Antifa movement, and that is that this irrelevant reference to Nazi Germany and standing up to the Nazis when they were a small-ish movement is the role or the absence of the role of government. In Nazi Germany, the government was quite passive in suppressing either powerless or didn't care, but in suppressing the Nazi movement and the Nazi movement, when it got violent, uh, just was not repressed by society, by government. In the U.S., there is no suggestion that any violence by the alt-right will not be dealt with adequately by government, by the government's police powers. And for Antifa to use Nazi Germany as a reference point ignores the fact that they don't have to be violent because the government is functioning and 
the history has been government will react appropriately to violence, whether on the left or on the right. And therefore, implicit in the Antifa movement is a lack of faith in government. And that's, uh, I think, an unwritten but important part of the movement. This is Bob Zadick. I'm talking with Anthony Fisher. We are discussing the Antifa movement. Violence begets violence begets violence. How did it start and how did it end? More with Anthony in about 30 really short seconds. Please stay tuned. There is so much more to come. Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, is a new ebook based on the best interviews from The Bob Zadak Show, California's longest-running libertarian talk show. Bob and his guests tell the story of the Great Compromise at the Constitutional Convention and the prediction by certain founders of a dangerously powerful federal government to come. Were anti-federalists right? Is there such a thing as too much democracy? Learn more by downloading your free copy today from BobZadak.com. That's BobZadak.com. Lawyer, lecturer, libertarian, The Bob Zadek Show, live and taking your calls now at 424 Bob Show. That's 424 Bob Show. Welcome back to the Bob Zadig Show, the only live libertarian talk radio show on the Arrow Weekend, the show always of ideas, never of attitude. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation this morning with Anthony Fisher. Anthony has written a compelling piece in the Daily Beast uh, recently, Why Antifa Nazi Punching is Just a Gift to the Right. In other words, Anthony's thesis, and of course he is correct, is that when the anti-fascist, kind of an absurd title, but the anti-fascist movement resorts to violence to suppress or oppose the alt-right, which probably has some roots in violence as well, it is just becomes violence, begets violence, begets violence, and the point of all of it is kind of lost, and there is no intellectual conversation, there is just people punching people on YouTube. Uh, Anthony, welcome back to the show this morning. Now, before we went to uh, to break, uh, I offer the observation, perhaps I'm right, perhaps I'm not, that implicit in the Antifa movement is a distrust of government, that government will be able to deal with the violent component of the uh, neo-Nazi or uh, the alt-right movement, uh, and to the extent that the alt-right or neo-Nazi movement does not result resort to violence, but only spews ideas, then there is no reason for violence, and violence uh, against ideas is as anti-American and as anti-Bill of Rights and as anti-American values as a movement can be. So why, if if there is an answer to this, why doesn't Antifa leave it to government to deal with the violence and leave it to the debate format uh, and to the public square argument to defeat the ideas of neo-Nazism? 
Well, a couple couple of real quick points. Um, one, it, it is kind of absurd that a, that a, a group that call, that's calling for a radical socialist revolutionary alternative, which would mean basically government control of everything, does not trust the government to police violence. Um, and two, just to loop it back a bit, uh, you know, in the, the the Antifa will argue that you know because Hitler started out with just a few brown shirts, you know, at the beer hall then they should have been stopped violently, and there never would have been World War II or the Holocaust. Um, but in Weimar, Germany, there actually were speech laws. There were anti-hate uh, speech laws. And there were anti-Nazi laws that prevented them from speaking in public uh, and demonstrating. And that really didn't work. <laughs> if anything, that made them martyrs and, and, and helped you know, build up the radical right fringe. So as far as the present day, um, they would argue that it, it always comes back to that counterfactual, that because... The, we, the Nazis weren't violently stopped in the crib um, that World War II happened. And they point to things like in, in, in Scandinavia, in Britain, and even in places in America in the punk rock scenes in the 1980s and 90s, uh, that every once in a while skinheads, racist skinheads, would try to infiltrate those scenes, and violent clashes would you know, take place. And a lot of, most often, the skinheads were rousted uh, polite society when it came to these, you know, music scenes and skater scenes. So, you know, but, but, but again, these are, these are huge, there's a huge gulf between those two things. There's a huge gulf between Hitler and punk rock skinheads. But the, the pro Antifa argument always relies on that counterfactual that Nazism is so bad, fascism is so bad, racism is so bad that it somehow imbues people with superpowers that they can they that it, it, before too long if you don't kill all the nazis as soon as they start saying racist stuff then they're going to be marching into poland and that's just again it's just such a leap of logic that ignores all the other potential consequences like backlash or like you know perhaps left-wing groups getting out of control and, and lowering the bar on who's a racist or who's a fascist or who's a nazi or who deserves violence as opposed to who just deserves to be you know denounced or vigorously debated so that's the that's why I try to uh, plead with people to to pause and think about the fact that you know at various times in this country, you know very you know the civil rights groups were just you know described as hate groups. You know, the gay the gay rights movement was described as a hate group by you know hard right Christians. The you know Martin Luther King's movement was you know a complete affront to Southern values, and none of these movements were broadly or even. Uh, popular on a local level quite often, but it was the principle of free speech and it was the law that the First Amendment protect, you know, that protected by the First Amendment that allowed these arguments to be made and ultimately allowed them to win. So when, when, when people say, you know, that, you know, we, we can't trust the government, we can't trust the police, Nazi punching is the only way, I try to remind them that free expression works both ways and that when you protect the absolute worst, most despicable, abhorrent speech and at least allow it to be heard peacefully, You've also protected the, right, the rights of the minority, the rights of the disenfranchised, and the rights of people who are fighting for rights that had not yet existed. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't fall from the heavens. They had to be fought for. And the only way they could be fought for is be, by being allowed to be heard in public. Anthony, one of the one of the great pleasures of an opinion show such as the show we are on right now is we are allowed to speculate and nobody can yell at us. So yeah. taking advantage of the license we are given, I have two questions. First of all, Antifa, we are discussing Antifa 
as a movement, its tactics and whether or not the the use of violence makes much sense, and of course it does not. But Antifa, I guess, and I and I believe, is a function of a larger a movement or set of political circumstances which are part of the compromise uh, of the principle of free speech, which, of course, as you are well aware and have written about, is occurring on college campuses. There is more suppression of free speech, disinviting of uh, speakers at commencement exercises and the like. So all of a sudden, in my view, uh, there has been a growing suppression of free speech in general. Is Antifa part, simply part of that bigger picture of suppression of free speech when the ideas being spoken are unpleasant to some people? And the second part of my question, and this is really the tough one, is I'm not at all, at all, attributing any of this as blame to Donald Trump. I'm not. I reject it. No, 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 no. But as a commentator, Anthony, because you see the world in a way that other people, you see things other people miss. So to what extent is there a dotted line or a solid line between the Trump election and Trump's style uh, and the Antifa and related movements. Is there a relationship at all? Is it coincidental or is it irrelevant? Uh, I think it's totally relevant, and I don't I don't blame um, the president for uh, any particular violence um, that didn't occur outside of his uh, own campaign rallies. But let's not forget that there was violence at his campaign rallies, uh, and there was violence that I'll plainly say he encouraged. You know, he 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 absolutely told people. If you see, you know, somebody, you know, about to disrupt one of our uh, rallies, punch him in the face and I'll pay your legal fees. You know, he did that. That happened. We got video of it. And what also happened, there were people who did sucker punch people disrupting uh, rallies. Now, complicated thing, because the disinvitation stuff, I think, is a bad idea. I think it's We lost Anthony for a second. Anthony, where the sound just left for a second. So, Vince, if we can see if we can get Anthony back. Uh, I'm sorry that Anthony has. Oh, he's there. Okay, Anthony, it's hard to hear you now uh, on your phone. Hello, can you hear me now? Now we can hear you. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Anthony. Okay. We didn't hear your last like 30 seconds. Uh, well, just uh, real, real quick, was just that I don't blame the president for uh, the culture of violence on the left and the right right now, but it should not be ignored that uh, the, you know while running for office, the president uh, did encourage violence at his rallies, saying that if someone was going to disrupt rallies, he would, he, he would encourage his supporters to punch those people in the face and he would pay their legal fees. That, that actually happened. So that didn't do any favors for, for keeping things civil. Uh, and, and, but at the same time, I also com- completely condemned when his rally in Chicago was shut down um, as, you know, that, that, you know, that is, that's not the way to, you know, like, President, you know, Donald Trump was on his way to the Republican nomination, shutting, violently shutting down one of his rallies was not going to, uh, silence his voice. And all he did, like you said, is give credence to the idea that opposition to Trump is inherently violent. Now, as far as disin- the, the culture of disinviting, uh, speakers to, to, uh, 
events and and, and free and uh, suppressing uh, free speech in general and suppressing free yeah. speech. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely write about it often, but I, I think we always we always have to kind of you know cultural thing. It's definitely disturbing, but we always have to remember that as long as um, we're not succumbing to the heckler's veto and, and we're not succumbing to uh, the threat of violence to shut down speech on. And like, so for instance, if the, the, the college Republicans at Berkeley, a public school, invite Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at an event on at Berkeley public property and it's violently shut down and the authorities, you know, capitulate to the mob, that's wrong. That's not right. Uh, but if a private university or a private club decides that it's not worth the baggage to have uh, a controversial speaker speak at their event, while it might be a chilling overall effect to free speech to have these kind of disinvitations, there it's fine. You know, private private groups and private organizations may invite and then disinvite anyone they choose. So it's important to make those distinctions. And just to explain it to our, uh, I, it probably doesn't need explaining, but the First Amendment, which assures us, in the broadest sense possible, of free expression and the right to speak, um, that limitation. Uh, or that uh, consent to speak only limits governmental action so that when, for example, movie stars, those people in Hollywood, uh, find people boycotting their movies because of what they said, that doesn't violate their free speech rights. That is simply the marketplace reacting in the way the marketplace is supposed to react. So Anthony reminds us that the guarantee of free speech only limits government from acting to limit free speech it doesn't affect the behavior of private parties thanks for it doesn't, private, making private that parties, reminder anthony the, 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 it also the first amendment protects you from the, the violence uh, of the heck's veto the, the, the first amendment does not get, like it, it is not under the purview of the first mob to shut down someone's speech and the heckler's veto is where uh, people can shout down a, uh, a speaker. Betsy uh, happened to Betsy DeVos somewhat recently, where the hecklers, those people in the audience, are so disruptive that the speaker doesn't get a chance to speak. That is known in political conversation as the heckler's veto. Now, Anthony, in the Antifa movement, what um, when you debated um, those pro-Antifa folks on that Al Jazeera uh, broadcast. What struck me as being strange was one of the pro-Antifa speakers who was debating you mentioned, and it was kind of a throwaway line, but it, it I noticed it. They mentioned they were opposed to, of all things, capitalism. So here yeah. you have an anti-fascist movement that is able to intellectually throw into the basket of things they oppose capitalism, which shows how absurd it is to rely upon labels like anti-fascist. It's anti-stuff and not anti-fascist if you can lump capitalism and fascism into the same point of view. Absolutely. Capital, I mean, cap, fascism is not capitalism. Fascism is, uh, you know, among many other, you know, the, inter, the, the complete intertwining of business and government. 
um, it is picking winners and losers. It's a different, it's a different kind of, you know, top down economic system. Uh, but yes, like you said, you know, it, it, it's by design. This is why it, it's, it's why these labels are meaningless. Like the same, the same, you know, I, so many people who uh, on the left who call themselves pro-choice pretty much are not pro-choice about anything except abortion. If it came to school choice, they would not be pro-choice, you know. Um, and the same thing with people on the right who are pro-life, which means they're anti-abortion, but they're pro-death penalty and they're pro-war. So, it, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it, they're, they're virtue signaling kind of labels, and that's, that's all, you know, to, to use, uh, to, to defend, you know, a revolutionary socialist alternative under Antifa is, uh, is a total whitewash, and it's a, it's a scam, and it's it's one of these like academic word games that really I understand why they exist, and I'm not an anti-intellectual, and I and I you know I read voraciously, and I I, I read I deliberately seek out points of view that uh, I'm not inclined to agree with, but it just it, it's the navel gazing uh, to to. to you know, throw in a million SAT words to justify the use of a reduction. Anthony, Anthony, what is the uh, the Antifa movement? I can't tell whether it's just a series of flash mobs formed to for a particular event and then it dissipates. It, as you pointed out, there isn't any. Antifa LLC, there isn't any governing body, they don't have meetings, they don't have officers, they don't have fundraisers and things of that nature. So it it has some of the attributes of a flash mob formed for an event and then people go take off their black clothing and take off their masks and go about their lives as accountants. Uh, so is this, uh, to what extent is attention to Antifa overblown because it's nothing other than a series of events with no legs, if you will. And to what extent uh, is Antifa to be paid attention to as the beginnings of a movement that perhaps can become disturbing? Well, I don't think, um, again, it's more inclined, it's more, it's more apt to describe them as kind of like a guerrilla movement where they, They've got back-channel ways of communicating, and, and in, in days with uh, so many encrypted apps and uh, means of communication that um, you know they don't need uh, their own network. They don't need to go public. They don't need to, to make a, a business or political proposition. These are all people. These are all volunteers. They're all working on their own time. Um, but uh, I would say that. My, my my biggest concern than anything like Antifa is going to you know start ballooning into a nightmarish communist dystopia is more that liberals who should know better are going to continue to wink at their tactics because it feels good to see Nazis punched and it feels good to see anyone who supports Donald Trump being attacked in the streets know better on me on the center left or, or people who might otherwise claim to care about civil liberties or the freedom of protest, but they're going to wink at this to the point that the inevitable crackdown from the Trump administration and other authorities uh, so that they, you know, they actually get their wish that government does become the arbiter of free expression, but it's a government that they oppose, that they call fascist. Uh, that's the, the, the leap in line. And it really... You know, it's it's one of the more disheartening 
being a civil libertarian in the Trump administration is not so much, you know, the loss of a lot of allies on the right who, you know, a year ago might have been concerned about a whole host of violations of civil liberties in the administration who suddenly don't care about those things anymore because Donald Trump infuriates the lefties. So that's, that's a bummer to lose those people on the right. But what's even more disheartening, in my opinion, is to lose people on the left who are just so at a loss to understand how Hillary Clinton could have lost uh, an unlosable election to a Carnival Barker uh, TV show uh, host who was the most unpopular in history. They are so that they are now abandoning of civil liberties and uh, and and really kind of is this very you know small movement by any metric, any movement, but elevating them as some kind of you know, superheroes is that's disturbing to me. I don't, I, I'm not worried about Antifa so much as I am worried about the uh, basic principles of civil liberties being completely abandoned because of Trump panic. Do you, um, so looking into the future, you're good at this, Anthony. As you look into the future, Antifa is going to flame out, is going to be around, but no bigger than it is now or is going to capture the imagination of more and more people so that it might grow and really become disruptive in civil society. It's not going to overthrow anything, but disruptive cause unpleasantness uh, and violence, and innocent people will lose their freedom, their lives, their property, and their rights because of the Antifa movement. So as you, uh, and once again, we have the luxury of being allowed to crashly speculate if we want. So what do you see um, the two years from now, the Antifa movement to look like? And maybe you'll say, let's wait until the 2018 (laughs) midterm elections. And you'll tell me, uh, and that would be, Maybe an accurate answer, maybe a cop-out, but what do you think? Yeah. Well, I certainly wouldn't hinge anything on, on elections, because, you know, I, I don't know who said it, but I think it's a great you know, line and very true that uh, politics is downstream from culture. Uh, so I don't really think it matters who's uh, the Senate majority leader in 2018. Uh, but what I, here, here's, here has been my concern ever since Donald Trump was elected. What happens when there's a major terrorist attack uh, in the United States? Now, if the Las Vegas shooter had been a Muslim, I worry that we'd be already debating Patriot Act 2.0 and possibly invading a country right now. Uh, so, if so, again, I begin and end this argument with violence begets violence, violence is a failure of political thought, and violence leads to crackdowns from governments that always end up infringing everybody's civil liberties. So... I don't think Antifa is going to become like a cultural force or a fifth column in this country. Uh, and I definitely reject uh, the Justice Department's designation of them as a terrorist group, but that's more on principle than anything else. I think that those labels are overbroad and, and sweep up innocent people. Uh, but what worries me, I think the worst thing that could happen from Antifa is in the event of that they kill someone, which could happen, you know, I mean, people, people, in the face and then hit their head on the cement and they're dead you know like you know people act like you know sleep you know beat downs that there isn't the potential for, for death that's that's insane you know um but i would say that the my, my my biggest concern for as long as donald trump is president is how 
not only the government, but the people react to a major terrorist event and whether or not they uh, did what, they, what, we, what you know, the vast majority of Americans went willfully along with uh, the Patriot Act, went willfully along with two wars. Um, and that was, you know, that was under a president who was certainly controversial. You know, a good half of the country probably considered him illegitimate, but not nearly as controversial as President Trump. Now, in the action of an overbroad crackdown on civil liberties, or if Donald Trump launched a, a full-on, you know, on the ground, then I could see Antifa violence really ramping up and being a real corrosive force. Um, but short of that, I don't see this movement flaming out so much as kind of ebbing and flowing as it has always done. They've, they've, they've never really, because they're um, asymmetrical and they're not an official group, uh, they, you know, as Mark Ray wrote in his book, that they 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 only pop up and, and really thrive when there's a specific enemy to fight, and when there isn't, they kind of retreat and then split up, and then they come back again when there is a you know what they what they deem a fascist threat. And there's no question that they think that the Trump administration and their allies represent such a fascist. I'm not willing to go there yet, but um, there's definitely there, there's uh, you know. There's reasons to be concerned, and and like I said, they, you know, you can't, you, I, you cannot prevent every terrorist attack, though. And I think Americans are kind of coming around to understanding that 9/11 was such a unprecedented and shocking um, uh, atrocity in both scope and scale, and the fact that it was on the American homeland that I think people, and we had just come out of the 90s where all of our military actions were kind of skirmishes in, in lands like, you know, the former Yugoslavia and Somalia, places that America really didn't understand. Uh, but, it, you know, nowadays, I think, you know, especially with the Internet, people and, and what much more like, you know, uh, virtual political activity, I think people would be as inclined to, to go along with that. Or not, when people are scared, they follow the government into a whole lot of rabbit holes. And uh, oh, that's, that's for sure. As long as President Trump is president, uh, I feel like the threat of Antifa really... It's a it's a mutual threat. It's uh, this 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 threat and Antifa will feed on each other. Violence from neo Nazis, violence from the government, violence from Antifa will all beget more more violence, not less. No one's going to beat anyone down. The violence will be met by violence. Anthony, thank you so much for your uh, discussion and analysis on Antifa. We have a we have a few minutes left. Tell us about sidewalk traffic. Thanks, Bob. Um, so. Uh, Sidewalk Traffic is a narrative feature film, a comedy drama that I wrote and directed and co-produced that is available to rent and purchase uh, on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, basically all major video on-demand platforms. It stars Johnny Hopkins, Aaron Dark, who was most recently seen in Good Girls Revolt, Sam Levine from Freaks and Geeks and Inglorious Bastards, Heather Monterazzo from Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, so a lot of great indie um, and comedy uh, stars, you know, Tom Shalhoub, who used to be the host of Fox News' Red Eye, Kurt Loder, who we all know and love from Rolling Stone and MTV and now reviews movies for a reason. So it's a great, uh, it's a great New York cast. Um, and I would kind of say if you're a movie fan, it's very much in the vein of Woody Allen or Louis C.K., where uh, the, the, it's definitely, you know, heavy themes like uh, new fatherhood, depression, uh, career calamities are all dealt with, but uh, the, the comedy comes from like the uncomfortable and really recognizable truths of the human condition. So again, sidewalk traffic—you know—you can find it on all the VOD platforms. And if you're if you're somebody who's 
uh, a new parent or knows a new parent or knows someone struggling with depression or, or uh, you know, artistic dreams. This is a cathartic and very funny. Anthony, you've listed the entire society of the of the United States. Uh, the movie is called Sidewalk Traffic. Be sure to catch it. This is Bob Zadig saying so long for now. I'll be back next Sunday. Thanks again to Anthony Fisher for his explanation of Antifa. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the three-day weekend. So long for now. <laughs>